0: Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. This is the beginning of the sermon series entitled Easter Tide. And what we're going to do for the next six Sundays is we're going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Easter Tide is a phrase or a term that was coined in, and more familiar to people from the high church world. In that, the time between Easter when Jesus is resurrected on Sunday morning, all the way to Pentecost, Penta meaning 50, 50 days after Easter, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, those 50 days are what tide covers. So this sermon series is gonna take an in-depth look at what did Jesus do in life and in ministry in those 50 days from his resurrection to when the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church is born on the day of Pentecost. Now, for many of us, this sermon series will remind us of things. It'll help you to remember For others of us, maybe you're checking out faith. Maybe a friend has invited you to worship with us online or to worship with us in person. And so you're checking out who Jesus is and you're kind of checking out faith. And you'll hear this series for the very first time and learn about the resurrected Christ. I know for me though, as I've been looking at Eastertide where for these 50 days we will focus on the resurrection and what it means, it's more about memory for me in a lot of ways. It's about reminding myself about who Jesus is in a resurrection. As I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded again of my own family. My family was predominantly unchurched. We didn't go to church. We had been living in the city of Nina, Wisconsin, and uh, I think my dad, with the hopes of keeping myself and my two older brothers out of trouble, he was a corporate engineer. He ended up buying a farm outside of Nina, And so I grew up on a farm in Nina, Wisconsin, and um, that was kind of the life I lived. It was a lot of chores, a lot of hard work, a lot of to-do lists, and uh, pretty isolated just because of how we were living. By the way, I can remember the day I realized in school that not everyone had a list of chores that started every day at 6 a.m. I thought everyone, everywhere, every kid, had a list of chores that you stepped into at 6 a.m. I was stunned when I found out that my friends didn't all have to do that. And on top of that, there were some that didn't have chores, which I think is sinful to this very day. But here we are on this farm, totally unchurched, and then someone begins to share what's called the gospel, the good news of Christ bringing God's kingdom into this world. Someone begins to share the good news of Jesus with my mother, And so we go from this isolated, chore-ridden farm life on the farm in Wisconsin to where all of a sudden we start going to church, something we had never done. We start attending this church, and the church that if you've been here, I've referenced before, was a church where you had traditional church people, what you would envision, and then there were a bunch of hippies. Because it was the end of the hippie movement and a lot of hippies were coming to faith because they were sexed out, drugged out, rock and rolled out and they tried and done everything and all of a sudden they recognized that there hopefully was more to life than that and so they began to look to Christ and it was called the Jesus movement. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of hippies all over the U.S., Canada and some down in Mexico who were coming to faith in Christ. It was a wonderful time. And so here I am, kind of this isolated, shy, introverted farm boy, and we start going to this church, and the church, again, has traditional church people, suit and ties, and then there were hippies, and the hippies were hippies, long hair, tie-dyed, rebellious, all of that stuff, and what was amazing is these people are getting along. And so here I am at this church, and as I think about the resurrection of Jesus, and I think about Eastertide where we take a look again at the resurrection of Jesus. That's the first place I was ever told about Jesus and the resurrection. And if I had ever been told before, I don't remember being told. So I'm at about the age of 11 and we start going to this church. And it was one of those churches where people worshiped full bore, where it was very demonstrative. It wasn't a church where people were stayed It was a church where people were very demonstrative. Worship was lively. And I I remember being in this church. There was what was called a hundred-voice deaf choir. And what that meant was is that these deaf people would put on white gloves, and they'd turn off all the lights in the church, and they'd put on a green fluorescent or maybe a black light, and they'd pound worship music through the floor of the church. And you'd see these hands worshiping in unison as all of these deaf people were worshiping God with sign language. Now just picture this, I'm an introverted, shy farm boy and you step into that, amen. It was like walking on Mars. But again, it was there where the pastor got up and he explained the resurrection. He explained why Jesus died, why he suffered, why God raised him from the dead and what that meant. It was the first time I ever heard the gospel. So when I think about Eastertide, I think about going as a young preteen boy from being totally unchurched to where someone shared the gospel with my mom, we began to attend church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take an in-depth look at who Jesus is, why he was dead, buried, resurrected. Now this morning, this sermon is going to be based on Matthew chapter 28. In just a moment, we're going to read that together, but we need to get a little bit of context before we read Matthew chapter 28, which is the resurrection story found in the Gospel of Matthew. As we read, you're going to discover that there are guards at the tomb. And the end of Matthew chapter 27 tells us why the guards were there. It would be very abnormal, by the way, to have guards at a tomb. Why? The person's dead. You don't need guards there. It wasn't like they put any treasures in the tomb with Jesus. The reason why the guards are there, the end of Matthew chapter 27, right before where we're getting ready to read, tells us that the Pharisees and some of the religious leaders went to Pilate. They said, hey, Pilate, listen, this guy named Jesus, by the way, we discovered their nickname for Jesus, which was Deceiver. They said, Deceiver has announced, and we know he said this, that on the third day after he's killed, he's going to be raised to life. And what we don't want is for his disciples to come and steal his body and then somehow perpetuate this lie. So, Pilate, what can we do in order to make sure that there's no lies perpetuated and that Jesus' body gets stolen and they say he was raised to life? What are we going to do? And Pilate said, look, take some guards and post them. And then the gospel tells us at the end of chapter 27 that they put a seal on the tomb. What almost all biblical scholars will tell you is that that seal probably was a large wax seal and embedded in that wax seal was Pilate's crest. It was his authority through Rome. And so beyond the guards, what it's telling you is if you mess with this tomb, you will mess with Rome and Rome will find you and Rome will deal with you harshly. So don't mess with this tomb. And so the other thing we need to understand is that as we're getting ready to read, there will be two women at the tomb. One is called Mary Magdalene. Ultimately, just so you know, her name really is Mary of Migdal. It's a seaside village that was on the Sea of Galilee. Almost all Bible scholars will tell you that's where she was from. But since they don't have last names in the day of Jesus, if you have a common first name, they will use where you're from or some attribute of you to denote that you're different than other people with that first name. That's why it's Jesus was named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, common name. So suddenly you need to denote who he is, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Mary was a very common name. In Hebrew, it's Miriam. So Miriam is a common name. There's several Miriams or Marys around the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Mary of Migdal was one of them. Luke chapter 8 tells us that she was demon-possessed when she met Jesus. She had seven demons and he cast them out. And out of love and affection for Christ, for the freedom that he had brought into her life, she follows him. She follows him to the cross, she follows his dead body to the tomb, and now she's at the tomb on resurrection morning. Then the text tells us that there's another Mary. She's denoted in the gospels as the other Mary. Do you wanna know why she's called that? Because she's the other Mary. We don't know for sure who she was. So you have Mary of Migdal, Mary Magdalene, and you have the other Mary. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go ahead and read the resurrection story in Matthew 28. Here's what the Gospel tells us. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, by the way, that would be Sunday morning. So on Easter resurrection Sunday morning, the text tells us Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love one pastor when he was preaching this said that the angel came down, took his pinky and flicked the stone over, sat on it, leaned back and said, that was nothing. I love that. It says his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. That same preacher said it this way, that the two guards messed their pampers and they fainted. That's how he put it. I like that. Now, one of the things I want to make mention of before we read the rest of the resurrection story, and I want us to catch this, This Bible is written by Eastern people. This is not a Western book. It's an Eastern book. And the Bible was written in the Middle East with a Middle Eastern mindset. And what that means is, is they write differently than we're used to reading. Also know this, that in Hebrew and Greek, there's no punctuation. Your entire Newer Testament is one run-on sentence. Do you know that? Any punctuation you see has been added by the translators. Now, one of the things, though, about Near Eastern literature is that you prove your point by repeating a similar theme or a similar set of words. So when you sit down to read the Bible, I want you to do this from now on. When you read it, read the Bible and look for repeated phrases and repeated words because that's the point. That's the point the writer's trying to make. In the West, we would use exclamation points, we would embolden stuff, we would underline it, we would do, but that's not how it works in the Bible. What the Bible wants you to know is through repeated phrases or repeated words. We got this? Now let's read the rest of what we need to read in the resurrection story of Matthew 28. Here's what the gospel says to us, beginning in verse five. Told you, reading on, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them, greetings he said, they came to him, clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. What have you noticed in this gospel account? It's about seeing and it's about telling. That's actually the message. The resurrection of Jesus is directly at the center. But what the gospel writer is trying to explain to you is that the resurrection is about Jesus, it's about coming and seeing, and then going and telling. That's what it's about. So the idea here is see and tell. Now, when I grew up, we had an event at school called Show and Tell. How many of you here ever did Show and Tell growing up? Raise your hand really high. How many of you have no clue what Show and Tell is? Okay, most of us do. Just so you know, if you ask any educator, Show and Tell is a trick that a teacher does to get every kid up front to practice public speaking. That's what it's for. Get them to bring something they're passionate about and they'll get up front and they'll tell the class all about it and it's really cool. I loved show and tell as a kid. You'd find out what other people were interested in and my favorite one ever was growing up on the farm, there was a kid in our school who was a professional muskrat trapper. He trapped muskrats for a living. He made $15 for every muskrat pelt. The kid in my eyes was rich, because my dad paid me 25 cents a week to do all those chores I've told you about. My dad was German, Uh, that's enough said. (laughs) But I remember my buddy getting up front with that muskrat pelt, and he brought his traps, and it was awesome, and he was so passionate about it. And I said to my dad, I want to trap muskrats. He said, the problem is you have to live on a river or a stream to trap muskrats, I said, I want to move to where there's muskrats, because that looked awesome. The thing of it is, is when someone tells you something about what they're passionate about, it affects you. There's something about passion and telling what you've seen. The gospel wants you to know this is how the kingdom of God works. It's about seeing Jesus and then telling people about what you've seen. It's about see and tell. The rest of this sermon is going to be about putting feet to your faith. What does it mean for us to look at the resurrection story in this Easter tide series and look at Jesus being raised from the dead? And what does this gospel story tell us we are called to do in putting feet to our faith as followers of Jesus? Well, the reality of it is it's simple because this biblical gospel narrative tells us what God is looking for. We find it in Matthew 28, 9. We've already read it, but I want us to look at it again. Matthew 28, 9. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said, and they came to him, clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. I want us to notice that the gospel here is clear. They came looking for Jesus. They came to look for him. When I think about Eastertide, and I think about reflecting again on this idea of the resurrected Christ and people looking for Jesus, I think about when I was looking for Christ as a preteen boy. I already mentioned that my family began to, we went being, from being unchurched to now we're attending a church. I heard the gospel explained that God came in the flesh in Jesus, the incarnation of God. And he stepped into this world. And Jesus, in the incarnation, God took on flesh and stepped into this world. But this world was filled with suffering. And he doesn't ignore the suffering, he actually steps into it fully. And he suffers to death. And I remember being told that Jesus did that out of love and self-sacrifice and care and concern for all of humankind. And then Jesus, after he gives up his life, becoming an atoning sacrifice for my sin and for what I had done, that God, in acceptance of that sacrifice, raised Jesus to, to, to new life through death, through hell, and through the grave on the third day, and that's what Easter is. And I remember listening to that, about 11 and a half years old. And as I was thinking about Eastertide and reminding ourselves again of the resurrection, I thought about when I accepted Christ. When I made the decision to follow Jesus, it wasn't in a church. It was actually walking across the farm field with my German shepherd named Jinx. Jinx was my best buddy. We had a German shepherd on our farm, and everywhere I went, Jinx would go. His mom was an albino, and his dad was a regular German shepherd, so he was half white and half what you picture a German shepherd to be. And Jinx and I were walking across the field in spring, and the cover crop was growing. A cover crop is what you do up north to, prov- to prevent erosion in the spring, where just before everything freezes, you plant a crop. Ours was winter wheat. So we would have harvested all the corn, we would have plowed fields, we would plant this uh, cover crop called winter wheat, and in the spring, it would begin to grow, it would head relatively quickly, we would harvest that wheat, we would make it into cow feed, and then plant another crop in that field. So in the springtime, our farm was covered with these green cover crop winter wheat fields, and the crop was about this high, and it was bright, bright green, I always remember that. So I'd been hearing about the resurrection and I'm walking through that field with my dog Jinx and I'd been hearing the message of Jesus for about a year. I'm walking across that field and all of a sudden I begin to think about Jesus. And the strangest thing happened is I met him in a winter wheat field with my dog Jinx. I have no idea what spiritually happened to Jinx. But for me, it transformed everything. Because suddenly everything I'd been told about Jesus began to make sense to me. And so I stopped in that winter wheat field and I prayed a pretty simple prayer and it would just go something like this. Jesus, you know, the truth of it is, if you're real, I know I need you. Now here was the interesting thing though, is in the church where we were attending, the testimonies were given by hippies. They'd been sexed out, drugged out, rock and rolled out, and their testimonies were amazing. Mine was, I might have stolen gum from my mom's purse or something. I didn't have any huge marketable sin, but I sensed in the heart of an 11-and-a-half-year-old boy that there was something sinful about me, and that I needed Jesus. And if the resurrection was true, then there's a new life. It's called being born again or being born from above. And I knew this. And it was in the winter wheat field in spring that year when I was 11 and a half that I accepted Jesus, where the gospel became real to me, where I'd been looking for Jesus, but he found me there in that field, and it changed everything. Changed everything. And so when I look back at Eastertide, I think about these women coming to look for Jesus. And here's what Jesus promises all of us. Matthew chapter seven, verses seven through eight. So before the resurrection story, 21 chapters earlier, Jesus makes this promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The truth of it is, is that when you go looking for Jesus, you don't find him, he finds you. And that's what happens here at the tomb. The women are coming to look for Jesus, but all of a sudden, he's there. He finds them. And the promise Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, is that any woman or any man Anywhere, at any point, at any time, who asks, seeks, and knocks, Jesus will find them. It's the promise of God. And then the text tells us that they clasped his feet. Think about that. His ankles were pierced. His body had been mutilated. And the text says they clasped his feet. They took a hold of Jesus. He was there looking for them. And when they saw him, they took a hold of him. It's the ultimate act of faith, of reaching out and grabbing Jesus and connecting with him. And then the text says, they worshiped him. They worship him. The reality of it is, it has been said, we all worship something. What is it that you worship? We all worship something. When I think about worship, I think about the church that I attended when I was a preteen boy. I remember going from being this reserved, pretty isolated, introverted boy and stepping into this church, and people didn't just sing, they worshiped. And there's a difference. And when I was there, and they began to sing, and then they began to worship. There was something that was so real about that that it began to move me in my own faith to believe that God was real. So the idea here is, is they grab a hold of Jesus, and they worship. And even as an 11 and a half year old boy, I was looking at these women and men around me who are worshiping, and it begins to dawn on me, what they're doing is very private. It's personal. It's between them and God with their eyes closed. Some would raise hands. In that church, some people would kneel. In that church, some people would just sing with their eyes open. But the idea was, I knew there was some type of a transaction happening between God and his people. And oh, by the way, the text says, God always inhabits the praises of his people. That praise establishes his throne. So, when we worship, God says, That's where I belong. And he enters that space. And I can remember being there and watching people worship. And I've been in thousands of services just like that since then. But there's something about worship that is uniquely personal, and it's private, but it's also public. It's both, it's public, and it's private. As I mentioned to you guys two weeks ago, now it's been three weeks ago that I was in St. Louis with the UVA wrestling team for the national finals. And I was thinking about public worship when I saw this picture of Pinocchio in the statue park in St. Louis. This is worshiping Pinocchio. He's out in the park, hands spread, up looking at God and worshiping. I don't think anyone else looks at this and sees worshiping Pinocchio. This is a 10-foot-high statue that looks so random to me. And when I saw it, I thought, that's worshiping Pinocchio. So I took a selfie with me at the base of Pinocchio. But it looked so creepy that there was no possible way I would show that picture. So I stepped back, and I took this picture of worshiping Pinocchio. And here's what I thought about. Look, I'm a pastor full-time. So here's what I thought about. You know, Pinocchio, if you're worshiping Jesus, your nose will never grow. because he'll transform you. I had a little sermon for Pinocchio right there in St. Louis Park. But what I can tell you is, is that worship had an incredible impact on me. And this text tells us that these women were looking for Jesus. He found them, they didn't find him. And when they were found by him, they worshiped, they worshiped him. And then Jesus says in Matthew Matthew 28, 10, as we get ready to close, it says, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and what? Go and tell. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It's about telling and seeing. It's about people who have seen Jesus go and tell other people about the Jesus that they've seen. And then they hear about Jesus, just like it happened in my home, where someone told my mother the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of Jesus. And then we started going out, going to church. And when we did, I saw Jesus, because someone who had seen Jesus told my mom about Jesus. It's about seeing and going and telling. But notice in this phrase, in the text that we've read, Jesus tells the disciples, go to Galilee. There there you will see me. I found that odd. Why wouldn't Jesus do it in Jerusalem? He had just met the women there. Why wouldn't he say, let's all gather together around the tomb. Go get all the disciples. Bring them here. Let's do it here in Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't. He's very crystal clear. I want you to go tell the disciples to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Why does Jesus do that? I think I know. Because for most of the disciples, the Galilee is home. It's where they're from. It's where they first met Jesus. It's where on the shores of the Galilee, Jesus had recruited them to come and follow him. There were some that happened later, like Matthew the tax collector, but the majority of them he had recruited from that little seaside village called Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and he tells them to go home, and you're gonna see me there. I want you to go back where it all began, because now that I'm resurrected, this thing is gonna take a brand new trajectory. So Jesus says, let's go back, Let's remember where you first met me. And then I'm going to tell you about the resurrection. And then we're literally going to go and bring the gospel to the entire world. It's going to go everywhere. Now, here's the practical implication of that. If you met Jesus, I want you to go back where you first met him. Yours won't be on the shores of the Galilee, but it'll be somewhere. Somewhere. What I want you to do is walk through those winter wheat fields with your dog. I want you to go back to the place where you had been looking for Jesus and Jesus found you. I want you to think about that place and thank God that during Eastertide we're reminded again of going back home where it all began. We become renewed, we become inspired, and we become a grateful again for what God has done for us. And if you've never accepted Jesus, as we're getting ready to close out this sermon, I encourage you to do what I did in a wheat field with my dog. You begin to seek, you knock, you ask, and Jesus will meet you wherever you're at. And it's in that moment that you upload to him your sin and he downloads to you his righteousness because of what he's done. And then you experience what it's called to be born again, to be born from above, to be born anew. And that resurrection life changes everything. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'm gonna ask that you would take just a moment and close your eyes in God's presence. If you have never accepted Christ, if you have never reached out and wrapped your arms around him and worshiped him, but you've been hearing about him, now's your time. Now's your time to open up your heart to him and put your faith, hope, and trust in him. And if you did this a month ago or 50 to 60 years ago, wherever it was where you made that decision, I want you to go stand in that wheat field Put yourself there and thank God again for the resurrection of Christ.